I'm a Yuan Nation woman from the south coast of uh, New South Wales, Saltwater, where my father and my grandmother grew up. The National Mental Health Commission, it's been established for over 10 years now, and there are people with expertise in the field, with lived experience from a range of social and cultural backgrounds that come to provide input and expertise for policy, to look at the evaluation of programs, to, to monitor policies and their implementation, for example. But what we're doing over the next few months right across Australia is revisiting some communities, but also reaching out to new communities as part of Connections 2022, which is making connections for your mental health and wellbeing program. And it's a, a fantastic initiative that I was part of a couple of years ago. A real honour to visit a range of communities around the country, everywhere from, from the Torres Strait down through the Territory and into other parts of the country, to really have the opportunity to hear directly from community individuals, elders, knowledge keepers from Indigenous organisations, families, service providers, as well as from non-Indigenous communities. But of course, I was deeply involved with those that had a significant proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and or were very much about providing um, comprehensive care. It's an opportunity for them to be able to share their experiences their expertise, the good, the bad and the ugly, for example, and for us to take that uh, information on board and use it to not only enrich our understanding of communities, but then to utilise that to inform policy, uh, to inform you know, decision-making that's about improved mental health care, social and emotional wellbeing and community-based services right across the country. And so without that input, and that specific knowledge and experience, then we wouldn't be able to provide any kind of quality work. We really do need people's input into this, which is why the connections visits are so important, but also why we look forward to them so much and the opportunity to actually be out and about in community and to di hear directly from mob, which is, uh, it's a complete honour for me. You would be, I'm sure, more than well aware of not only the gap between regional and city, but also regional and remote and the delivery of mental health into many remote Aboriginal communities is not only a long-standing issue, it's one that uh, Australia as a nation has to take on directly and confront the issues that uh, many Aboriginal people living remotely have lived with for decades. Yes, absolutely. So even when we're talking about essential services around comprehensive primary care, for example, even in urban and metropolitan centres, access to appropriate, accessible, affordable, high quality and culturally sensitive services can be very difficult. You then take that issue to your regional areas and remote communities and those issues of access are compounded 100-fold, if not more. So, And not just workforce, but having timely access to appropriate services that understand the context within which people experience mental health issues or even physical issues which cannot be separated from social and emotional well-being, for example. And it is a real struggle. And this is my perspective, but I think that, one, yes, the input from people that live this day-to-day -day is extraordinarily important. In fact, it is essential to what we understand and then to our messaging, of course. But without addressing the workforce pillars to then be able to address the highest standard of policy and resourcing decision-making, 
then we'll struggle. But of course, it isn't just about doctors and specialists. We have very skilled local people, Aboriginal health workers, other communities of practice across a range of disciplines, everything from senior people, knowledge keepers, Aboriginal medical service staff, to teachers, police officers, whomever else in the community finds that social emotional wellbeing and mental health is at the heart of the issues that they face every day. So I think we also need to think more broadly and even though it's the Mental Health Commission and we're addressing mental health issues, we know that the reach, the scope, the depth of those issues is much more than just that, just doctors, just health services. You yourself have a very good and clear understanding of the type of mental health services that Nunkari and traditional healers have provided for thousands of years, but it's only probably in the last decade that right across the board now, in a range of sciences, people are at least starting to acknowledge and comprehend that Aboriginal people do have something to bring to the table. Oh, without a doubt. I love that you've mentioned the Nunkaris and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing, being and providing care, because I think that is extraordinary. And I've always said that for me, yes, I'm a doctor by trade, but first of all, I'm an Aboriginal woman. And I think that what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have to offer, particularly in the health and wellbeing space, actually will enrich care, will enrich services, and will enrich the practice for everyone, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mob. So our Nunkari, for example, they're the rock stars of the health world. And I, you know, I'm really grateful that in many areas, and particularly, say, in Central Australia, but also extending across the other kind of borders and into other uh, states and territories, that the, the status of the Nunkari has been recognised the work of the Nunkri has been recognised such that they are now integrated into what would ordinarily be seen as mainstream service provision. So there's respect, there's acknowledgement, and I think it helps MOB to feel better understood and that services are more relevant to them and respects their beliefs around health and wellbeing, which, of course, for anybody... If you feel disconnected from a service or from a system, you're less likely to want to access that at any time, let alone when you're unwell or in crisis. But if there's a touch point or a touchstone for you that is really culturally powerful, then that provides the message that you will be welcome. You can access that you know, well before you get to the point where you're really struggling. And I, I want to normalise, I suppose, health services and mental health services such that we can also work in the preventive space. It isn't just, you know, when people are in crisis or unwell. We can actually talk to people about how we are well, how we stay well, and how culturally relevant and positive practices will support that. And that could actually be understood, acknowledged, and incorporated wherever appropriate into so-called mainstream services. Because we do things well, we did them well for thousands of generations and the ability then to be able to influence systems, health practitioners, medical education, whatever that looks like, I think will be incredibly important moving forward. The space that many young Aboriginal men, women, uh, younger people, the current space they're in is, is extremely difficult. The sense of identity at the moment, not being sure who they are in their own country acknowledgement of their role in community and society, and then looking at 
suicide rates of young Aboriginal people, getting into their headspace is not an easy task. No, you're absolutely right. You might know that I work basically just with munchkins, so not to 18-year-olds. And I tell you what, I, I wouldn't be a teenager again for quids. You know, it was hard enough the first time around, but it's so much more, well, I feel, but it's so much more complex now for a variety of reasons, you know, social reasons, economic, social media reasons, whatever that might be. And I think that for children transitioning into adolescence and then into young adulthood and then the youth space, there are so many important changes happening for them. And we don't necessarily equip them well to be able to deal with what are just normal but sometimes uncomfortable parts of, of growing and changing and understanding who we are, for example. We don't do that particularly well because we have intergenerational issues, historical notions of intergenerational struggle, trauma, disconnection. There's all of that. And that's an unfortunate legacy. So we haven't come to terms with that. How do we break those intergenerational cycles? You layer on top of just being an adolescent issues of identity, personal, sexual, whatever, of cultural identity and how do I connect with my heritage, my culture, my history in a positive sense but also make that work for me in a broader mainstream environment. We're not recognised, we don't teach curriculum, for example, by and large in mainstream schools and we should. We should acknowledge languages. We should have more local people involved in teaching all Australian children about our contribution, our participation and the great value that we add to this country. We don't do that. So people don't see their identities valued in that sense. And that kind of breeds, I think, an unhappiness, a discontent, an anger and despondency that I don't want to see. It breaks my heart that children struggle with something that should actually be one of the most beautiful and powerful things about them that they are young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. That's what I would like to see, how we make that happen. It's complex, but it's not hard if we all play a part in the integration of the truth into what we do on a daily basis, how we see people on a daily basis, how we understand them, connect with them and connect them to each other and then make sure that our services are appropriate, they are acceptable and they are culturally strong. That's what I think all kids need, that our kids need and that's what I would like to see for them and so our systems can do so much better. How can this commission make a real difference in the delivery of programs when historically governments are so used to just ticking off boxes and saying, well, we've looked at it, we've made recommendations and back on the shelf? You and I both know, irrespective of the quality of a piece of work, without then a corresponding implementation, translation and implementation plan, it doesn't matter if it's the sexiest policy in the world. You need to then be able to make it happen. We don't want hollow rhetoric. I'm not even particularly concerned about, you know, um, statements around, you know, well, the budget allocation was X amount. Everything costs money. I'm not as interested in inputs as I am in outputs and impacts. We have some excellent examples domestically, so nationally, but also from international Indigenous communities that have been able to make drastic changes to mental health status, but also the rates of youth suicide when they've made quite simple changes to the way in which communities express positive cultural practices. 
Things like street names, having Indigenous mentors, teaching language at school, for example, flying the flag, having more artwork in public space, something that represents the young people but also allows people to connect to a space even more so than it would if they know that that's their country, which is also incredibly powerful. We talk about the cultural determinants of health as well as the social determinants of health because we know that positive cultural practices... So knowing where you're from and who your mob are, being able to connect to country and utilise country, for example, knowing your stories, your language, dance, performance, those sorts of cultural connectors can make an extraordinary difference, not just to how children see themselves individually, but how they see themselves within the collective and how they then develop a voice and feel empowered within their own space. So, you know, very simple steps that are completely doable and are completely doable within a short to medium term as well as how we then unfold that over a medium to long term and make it a core part of our business. And by being able to identify those exemplars and use case studies to then inform policy and other decision-making associated with resourcing and then service delivery on the ground. I mean, we have quite an extensive and extraordinary network of Aboriginal community-controlled services, health and otherwise, an existing network that you can leverage then and enhance their ability to provide contextualised services based on local priorities. So we need to be doing that. You know, fund them to the degree that is, um, you know, equivalent to what they deliver, not just what you want your KPIs to look like. So it's not as hard as people tend to think. There's lots of work for everybody to do, but it actually needs a sustained commitment over time from local agencies and leadership, from your state and territory governments, as well as from the Commonwealth government. And I think that's where the Commission in particular has a... a a fair role to play in terms of our advice and influence. A large amount of money might be given to a private company to deliver those services, but it's limited to the contract and then it's over. When do you think we can see a shift into ongoing funding into communities to grow and develop a local workforce that can deal with their own problems? I hear what you're saying, absolutely, and it is an ongoing frustration for people like myself, but of course more so for local people and those on the ground that are experiencing this at any given time. We need a seismic shift in the way that we think about capacity building and service delivery. We know this stuff happens, so why wait, as we've mentioned, until a community or a family is in crisis? So in the interim, you know, we still need the ability to be able to respond, but we also need the ability to be able to prevent you have services on the ground. Most of the time, they're not all highly specialised in that sense. You're not going to get a child psychiatrist to every remote community in the country, for example, but we should be able to gain access to advice and services, but also build the people that we already have on the ground to work in a space towards the prevention of youth suicide. I think it's doable. You've got some big, juicy brains in community. You have enormous talent you have cultural authority, and then, of course, that needs to be backed by existing service providers and specialists, and then you layer that, layer upon layer. And it can be done, but we then also need those at the pointy end that make decisions about policy 
and resourcing and support for service delivery to change the way that they then diversify or contract or externalise those responsibilities. As much as we talk about generational and intergenerational change, as I said before, those at the pointy end of the decision-making around policy and resourcing, they just need to take our advice and do as we tell you. That would be delightful. So, in fact, we continually tell the same story and have done for some time, and the answers are there. So listen, and don't just listen. You need to hear what is being said and then make it so. It's actually not as hard as we think. We can't unravel everything all at once because, of course, many of these issues have been decades in the making and they're complex and it's hard to unravel. But in fact, there are so many very simple things that we could be doing at any given time that will make an enormous difference such that the impact of simple steps, will, yeah, the return on that investment will be 1,000-fold. And remembering that... Most of the social determinants of health lie outside of health. So they can sit within education, within employment, you know, within other agencies, for example. It's about economic um, stability and independence and having your basic needs met. It's about safe communities, safe families, safe children. It's about education in schools that is inclusive. Stop suspending our children for, you know, 200 days a year, for example, because they're exhibiting behaviours consistent with trauma, but you don't know how to deal with it. So we need to learn to see our children and to understand them and to be better able to respond. That stuff's not within the realms of science fiction. We know how to respond to that right now. So truth-telling, teach our actual history in schools, teach local languages in communities, that builds strong Happy Children, for example, provide services that address some of the intergenerational impacts. We can do that. We have the network of services. So there's that. Make safe communities. We can do that as well. So, you know, there are many steps that we could be taking yesterday that would make a difference within a very short period of time. So a focus on those and then get those other additional innovative local examples of what's working on the ground for families, for communities, for services and get those happening as well. I am optimistic.